Hi there, my name is Ben Eaton, and welcome to the Performing Musicians Podcast. In this podcast, I'll be chatting to a broad range of musicians, artists, songwriters about their experience in the music industry. We'll be talking about their dreams, their background, their career highlights, and a range of other topics relating to making a living inside this tough cutthroat industry. We'll also be discussing the current COVID-19 crisis and how it affects their income, their goals, their dreams, and what they think might happen next to them and the industry they love. Without further ado, let's get into it. Uh, hi, guys, and welcome to the Performing Musicians Podcast. Today, I'm lucky enough to speak to session drummer, clinician, and producer, Mike Horn. How are you, mate? Yes, mate. I'm good. Thank you very much. It's great to have you. Um, and uh, just to kick us off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, what do you do and how long have you been doing it? Oh my gosh, how long have I been doing it? Oh. Simple questions, simple questions. That's going to give away the game. <laughs> That's giving away a lot. How long have I been doing it? You know? There's no ageism in this place, mate. Yeah, well, uh, you, know, um, you know, I'm only 21. And I'm Beautiful. <laughs> so, so 20 years, I guess. No, uh, I've been playing, um, how, long, how long has it been now? Uh, since I was 12. I st started when I was 12, so I didn't start particularly early. Um, and uh, so that would mean I've been playing now for like um, 28 years. Awesome. Oh my gosh. 20, go. 27, 20, almost 28 years. I've got, I've got you by three years, I, mate. I've got <laughs> I haven't thought about it in a really long time, like yeah. how long I've actually been playing, you know? Yeah. And now that I'm, like, I'm putting it into words, you know, 20, 27, 28 years, yeah. Yeah, it was 30, 31 um, years for me this year, actually, 31 years. 30. Wow, man, wow, it is crazy, yeah. Where, where did it all go? Why am I not better? <laughs> <laughs> Why am I not a better drummer? <laughs> mate, I've, I've played gigs with you. You are, you are very much better. Thank you, mate. Thanks so much. Yeah, so when I was 12, I started playing drums. Um, yeah, I started playing drums on, on everything and everywhere. And um, yeah, it's weird. I'd, I had tried a, a couple of other instruments before drums, just like briefly. I thought maybe I wanted to be an electric guitarist and then I thought maybe I wanted to be a saxophone player. I know it's a very weird selection of stuff. Um, but nothing like really took hold. Yeah. And then when drums, once, once drums, it just really absolutely became a, a total obsession. Yeah. Um, took over me and I just wanted to be like consuming, you know, drum related materials like 24 hours a day, like reading drum magazines and watching drum videos and, I just went absolutely crazy for it, like from 12 onwards, you know. That's amazing. Uh, so, yeah, I've been doing it 27 years, did did music uh, in high school. Uh, after high school, went to university. Uh, at university, uh, did did a, a music degree. 
Um, I actually did a music degree and then I did, it, I did, I did an honours year as well. So I did five years at the University of Cape Town uh, doing my doing my BMAs in jazz performance. There you go. <laughs> and uh, yeah, man, just been playing and touring and recording. Um, love being in studio, um, which is which kind of led to a natural thing of me getting into producing, and I started producing recordings and albums for people, and um, and yeah, it's just grown and expanded, you know, exponentially over the last twenty-seven years. That's cool. So you obviously, with your uh, with your accent and the the fact that you yeah. talked about Cape Town, you're you're obviously from South Africa. Right. What was it like yes. being a young drummer in South Africa? It was awesome. It was incredible. You know, um, you know, it's it. It was really amazing. You know, yes, as you correctly point out, I born and raised in Cape Town, uh, Cape Town, South Africa, and Cape Town's amazing because it's that really sort of very Catholic, very universal, very open, touristy. Uh, you know tourist holiday hub everyone's going there on holiday but culture's passing through all the time and um and yeah i was very lucky because my father uh my father uh, uh who's he is still a saxophone player but back then uh you know when i was very young he was a full-time professional session saxophone player awesome uh, he doesn't do it full-time anymore but back then he was doing it full-time so had a very strong uh, musical kind of family and setup already happening. You know, he was doing music full time back then, touring. Um, you know, touring with a lot of big South African artists. Um, yeah, cool. As a, as a saxophone player, um, probably most famously, he he did a lot of stuff on the road um, alongside Jonathan Butler. Oh, uh, right. Jonathan Butler, who's another famous South African. Uh, who was also still living in Cape Town back then and touring with a lot of the same artists um, as a side man that my father was. Um, and uh, and then Jonathan Butler went, you know, to live in the States and became this super famous uh, R&B star. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, yeah, but they started out as side men, you know, touring together back in the day. And uh, so my dad was always involved in music, always, you know, going to rehearsals and going to concerts. And from a very young age, I was just involved in that scene already. So that kind of made it a lot easier and just a lot more fun as well. You know, my dad was always around musicians and always had them coming over to the house. And I'd always go with him to rehearsals and I'd get up on the kit and I'd start messing around on the kit and I had to be told to shut up and get off and <laughs> you know, all that kind of thing. So it was, so it was quite a cool start, you know, it, was, it was quite fun. You know, it was, yeah, it, it, it was quite cool. And then, you know, high school music and getting, you know, everything, you know, went really well. Sort of getting into all the orchestras and bands and big bands and jazz bands. And then same thing, you know, went to university. By the end of, of high school, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And there was no question in my mind. It was going to be going to university to study music. Um, yeah, and... Same thing, got to university and was just throwing myself in, you know, head first, you know, into the deep end with bands and big bands and orchestras and, 
and you know afro-cuban latin tentets and all kinds of whatever i could hands on you know wow and it was a good time it was a really fertile time there was a lot of stuff happening in cape town stuff happening in south africa the scene back then was really big really busy so it was a good time you know sort of 90s beginning of the 2000s it was a really good fertile time you know to get into all of that amazing and so when you when you first started getting into drumming and, and thinking about like listening you know, choosing it as sort of like your path what were your sort of main influences what sort of what were you listening to as a young drummer i was kind of listening to anything and everything um uh you know typical typical young teenager you know um i once had this girlfriend and uh you know early high school i once had this girlfriend and um and she introduced me to a band who I who I never had heard of before I met her. And that band was Pearl Jam. Ah. Yeah. And she actually, she lent me my first ever uh, Pearl Jam CD. And, there you go. Uh, yeah. I think, I think I gave it back to her. I mean, I, I hope I did. It doesn't but anyway, matter, man. Uh, uh, yeah, I got hold of my first Pearl Jam CD and, and then I was totally smitten and totally in love with with Pearl Jam and um and it was around which the time album which album do you remember uh Pearl Jam 10 10 so the the production on that is particularly nice for drums it's nice and it's nice and roomy yes. I always I always think about the production of the drums on that album because the bass the kick drum is just it's it fills the room yeah and yeah. I remember that as well. I remember I first heard that album, yeah. And I was like, it just sounds like it sounds like it's live. It sounds like it's there, right? That right. always struck me the production of the drums on that album. I, it's not surprising that grabbed your ears, actually. Absolutely. And the ironic thing for me about that album is that by the time I got into Pearl Jam Ten, it was around the time of uh, Pearl Jam's MTV Unplugged. Right. And on that particular show, the drummer was Dave Abrazesi. Yeah. I think you pronounce it Dave Abrazesi. The guy with the long, the really long hair. Long hair. Yeah. Just phenomenal. Just gorgeous. Just yep. like everything he does is just sounds delicious, looks delicious. I was just totally amazed. And so because I was really young as well, in my mind, because – he was playing for Pearl Jam on that show. In my mind, I just made the assumption that he was also the guy on the album. Yep. Ted, I didn't. I only discovered much later that he didn't actually play drums on Ten. No. You know, um, I believe it was. If I'm, uh, it was I. It was Dave um, uh, uh, Cruzen. Was it? Was it Cruzen? Or that sounds yeah. right. My memory's escaping here. I think it was it was cruising, um, or was it? I think so. Anyway, um, <clears throat> and um, and yeah, but I totally fell for Dave Abrazesi, which is why I know amongst Pearl Jam fans, this is <clears throat> a very controversial. Um, <laughs> but I still will fight to the death uh, that that 
Dave Abruzzese was the best Pearl Jam drummer that Pearl Jam ever had and, uh, and foolishly let go. Um, yeah. I still love them. I still yeah, love them. That's great. Anyway, I interrupted <laughs> yeah. you with the uh, production chat. You were, you were talking about your influences. Yeah, yeah, no. And, you know, so, so was listening to stuff like that. Uh, I totally fell in love with, uh, with uh, the snare drum sound that, that Aaron Coombs uh, did uh, on, on Two Princes by the Spin Doctors. Man, I love that album. Man, just that album and that drum. So good. Yeah, yeah. What was it? What was um, a song where it's like it goes into like an eleven-eight section for an extended period? Ah, uh, yes. I um, I know the one you mean. Uh, How could you love him when you know you could have me? That yeah, song. Ah, yeah. oh, what's it called? Yeah. Oh, the song name escapes me. But, uh, but I still yeah. play that album. That it sounds amazing. The guitar sounds are ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Eric Skankman. Yeah. Oh uh, man. On guitar and uh, and the drum sound Aaron Coombs got on that on that album, yeah, uh, pocket full of kryptonite, spin yep. doctor. What a cool album, man! I still I still play that album like probably once or twice a year. I'll, yep. I'll listen to something and like obviously everyone knows Two Princes, but like there's a couple of songs on there that are just unbelievably beautiful. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I totally went, I mean, I totally fell in love with that whole album. You know, all those songs are so great. Um, yeah, as you say, besides the ones which are really well known. And the other, I got into all the other albums and there was so much cool stuff on, on, some, on some of the other albums too, man. Yeah. Cleopatra's Cat and all that kind of stuff, you know. Um, I was just say I was just on Facebook the other night actually telling someone someone brought them up and I was like yeah I, I spent about ten years trying to trying to get that snare drum sound yeah that that Aaron Coombs got and you know trying for years in studios like on album projects like decades later you know quite a bit of stuff how can I get that Aaron Coombs snare sound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so a lot of stuff like that, but I'd, I'd have to say um, that there were two very significant um, events that kind of that 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 made me decide to do this as a profession, and and um, I think that was your original question. Yeah, if we try and you know drag something from the wreckage, um, <laughs> I. The two significant events is that when I was when I was uh, still in high school, um, so so much earlier on my early teens, <clears throat> a really cornerstone moment was I got really into Sting, mm -hmm. and and it was around the time of the Soul Cages tour, and my dad recorded me a video of Sting's 40th birthday concert live at the Hollywood Bowl. Oh, right. Which is now an infamously famous concert as being yeah. one of the best ever and one of the best live drum performances by none other than His Royal Highness Vinnie Colaiuta. But Colaiuta, yeah. I was going to talk to you about Colaiuta, yeah. And His Royal Highness. <laughs> man, yeah. <laughs> His, his, the Dark Lord, Vinnie Kaliuta, and yep. uh, that concert. When I saw that concert, I I became absolutely manically obsessive with that concert. And over a period of like a couple of months, and which turned into years, 
of being obsessed with Vinny's playing on that concert. I think that is what really pushed me a lot of the way to actually deciding, you know what, that, what he's doing there on stage on that gig, that is what I want to be doing for yeah. the rest of my life in one way or another. However it, it pans out, however I have to get there in one way or another, I want to be doing that. I'd say that's probably the, was the first big cornerstone. And then the second big cornerstone was, um, was uh, there's, there's a very, very, very famous drummer uh, named Anton Fig. And Anton Fig uh, now tours a hell of a lot with Joe Bonamassa. Ah, I knew I knew the name. I couldn't place it straight away, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's on the road with, with, bon, with Bonamassa uh, mostly at the moment. But for... 25 years before Bonamassa came along, he was the house drummer on the Dave Letterman show. Of course. Yeah. Yes. Ah, oh, the yeah. was was he the one who always wore the bear, the little beret hat? Yeah. yeah. Sunglasses and the beret. Amazing uh, drummer. Dave Letterman show with, you know, with 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 Paul Schaefer and Will Lee and all those guys. He hit so hard. Yeah. Really hard. Just yeah. hit the yeah. snare. Brutal, yeah, a brutally hard and such a huge sound. Like, yeah, ah. yeah. And real, and the word when I think of him is precision. Yeah, yeah, just such precision and such a fat, fat groove, man. Mm. Such heavy groove and heavy time. And Anton is surprise, surprise, another ex-Cape Townian. He's South African, born and raised in Cape Town. Um, so he goes back to Cape Town um, quite often. Um, he he used to go a lot more to go see his parents uh, every year, um, and because uh, they, they they were still living there. And so he used to go to Cape Town, and he connected with a friend of my father's who has who had a recording studio. And there was one time where the friend of my dad's called me up and said, I've got Anton in town. He's agreed to come down to my studio and record a track for me. Would you mind, because uh, I was living just down the road, would you mind uh, lending us your drum kit? <laughs> I was like, absolutely. I'll come up and I'll no, say. No, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let me think. Let me think for one. <laughs> um I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll come and set my kid up and he can record it uh, in exchange for, A, I can hang out and watch him do the session, and B, if he'll give me a drum lesson. Wow. And it was really interesting because I was living in this tiny little place uh, in, in Camps Bay in Cape Town, and uh, he, uh, a day or two later, he came down and there he was sitting on my little little kit i think it was a tama um, in my lounge giving me this drum lesson you know and i think the time that i spent with him in the studio doing the session and getting that lesson also just like really affirmed you know what i am gonna do this as a as a, as a career this this is gonna be my life going forward you know that's amazing that's yeah. a that's a that's a real sort of catalyzing event isn't it big time Big time, yeah, yeah. To see, to actually come face to face and have, um, you know, be in the same presence of someone who was doing it, you know, yeah. 
someone who was doing it, you know, who was living the dream. You know, he's on TV every night on the Dave Letterman show, and he's played with Miles Davis and Jeff Beck, and the list goes on and on and on and on of, of all the major cats, you know. Wow. Um, and and that was really special because uh, grow, growing up in South Africa, you did not get opportunities like that very, very often. There was hardly ever opportunities to come face to face with someone who was actually doing doing it as a job, who was actually living that dream, and, and who made you feel like this was actually a possible thing. This was a tangible thing that you could actually do, you know. Those opportunities were very, very, very few and far between. So I do feel very privileged, you know. Absolutely. I can, as an Australian, I can relate to that. Yeah. 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 Grow, growing up in Australia and I grew up, I grew up in Outback Australia. I grew up in a little mining uh, town. So uh, it's, okay. uh, it's, uh, I remember the you band. One of the city Sorry. Slickers. You weren't like one of the main city slickers. You're one of the- no, I, I mean, I, I grew up, I grew up in a little town called Mount Isa, which is about a thousand kilometers from any ocean. Okay. And it's about 25,000 people there, maybe 20,000 people live there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very, uh, I mean, I've still got some friends from there yeah. and I still know a lot of people from there, but it's, it's just a different universe. It's not like any other place. And uh, one, one of the highlights I had was when there was a band called the Baby Animals who were really big in Australia in sort of the, the late 90s. And they came out and opened up like the, I think it was like the North Queensland Games or something, and we we supported them in my band. Okay. And the um, guitarist came yeah. up to me afterwards and said, "Nice playing, man." And I right. was like, "Oh, like not not the same level as what you're saying, but like someone someone from the telly said I can play. That's amazing. Like this is just the just the best thing that's ever happened. You know, like yeah, yeah. And I actually met him. I met up with him doing a doing a gig years later. Okay. And he didn't remember me at all. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Yeah, totally. yeah, of course. Why would you remember it? It was just some weird yeah. little country town. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, he didn't even remember, but like that one thing that he said had such a significant oh. impact, you know, Man, on su- such, such an amazing, like I was, I think I was like 19 or something or 18 or something. And it was just like, Oh, you know, Anyway, it's yeah. not it's not about me. Um, let's talk about your um, your family. So obviously, as you're growing up in a in a in a in a musical household, sure. your father and mother was your mother a musician as well? Or? No, my mother's uh, never played any instrument. She, you know, she doesn't consider herself to to to, to be musical. Um, but her and my father together were just both so involved in that scene also because um for a while for for quite a a while i think um maybe even since before i was born my mother worked for a record label oh right she worked uh she worked at at the record label uh for like one of the main record labels in south africa was was at the time was called mountain records and uh, my mom worked there, and um, and she was also very friendly with Jonathan Butler because Jonathan at that time was signed to Mountain Records. Yeah, 
was was you know a, a working session sideman with my dad they were all just so involved and immersed in that whole scene um but no she didn't play anything herself you know but yeah she was she was right she was right there involved you know so were in, they the were they the musical parents that said Yes, absolutely. You should do this. Or the were there musical parents who went, "Whoa, hang on a minute. You should be an you should be an accountant. Get a real job." <laughs> you know, ironically, yeah, they my my parents were totally different from everyone else that I knew in in the fact that they were totally supportive. They were one hundred percent for it. They were like drums. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, I mean. They wanted me to, you know, to, to learn the value of things. So they, you know, they made me save up for my own kit, you know. Um, they didn't just buy me one. They were like, if you want one and if you're serious about it, then you'll save up for it and you'll buy it yourself. Um, uh, you know, because they weren't just going to buy buy me one and then three weeks later for me, it's just like, ugh, you know, I'm over it. Yeah. You know, and I was serious, serious about it for a long time. So I did <clears throat> saved up. Um, but they were totally supportive. Drums? Yeah, sure. They were totally fine. You want to practice in, in your bedroom, in the house, like all afternoon, you know, as soon as you get home from school? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Totally cool with it. I'm sure there were times where it drove them crazy and, and drove them a bit mad and, and it was a bit irritating. But all in all, they were so supportive and so uncharacteristically supportive compared to everyone else that I knew. Like everyone I'd say, you know, ah, oh, drums. Oh, really? Where do you practice? At home in my bedroom? Really? Your yeah. parents are cool with that. I'm like, yeah, my parents are totally cool with that. And nobody could believe it. But yeah. But I think uh, as a parent, when you see your child really discovering a real love and a passion, that's got to be so just so lovely for them as well. Yeah. Yeah. As yeah. I, I mean, you know, I, I know myself when I discovered guitar, I just, I disappeared into my bedroom for five years, maybe. Right, and, right. You know, there, there, there may have been other things happening in there as well, but it was mostly guitar. Yes, yes. Yeah, majority of the time, guitar. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, aside from the chronic masturbation, it was just guitar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so you, you went, you went to, yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, healthy, healthy young man. You went yeah. to um, you went to university and you did jazz performance, correct? That's correct. Great. Yeah. And so, when you when you graduated, then what was your journey in in getting to London? Well, interestingly enough, you know, I, you know, the the the, the just it was the nature of the scene that um, that when I started at the be at the beginning of the five years at university. At the start, um, I, 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 like I was already sort of diving headfirst into into the, into the whole gigging thing, um, which was good because I also had to earn money to pay back student loans. You know, um, so yeah, I was getting student loans and, and I had to pay those loans back, and um, so I needed money, and so I needed gigs, and luckily. You know, it's not like I waited till the end of my degree to start gigging, you know. Um, actually, back in high school, you know, m my drum teacher who was teaching me drums in high school, he had a function band and I would occasionally, he would book me occasionally to dip in his function band. Awesome. You know? um, so, yeah, I was also sort of then already getting my, my getting my, you know, getting my... Um, 
my sort of first little sort of tastes of gigging. Um, got to university and it just blew up and I, and I was just getting involved in everything in university, outside of university and, and doing gigs wherever I could, whenever I could and just doing as much as I possibly could. So I was gigging from the beginning already. Um, and over so over the course of, of those five years, it was such a fertile time and I was in such a fertile environment being in, in, in a music university. And... Um, it just built and built and built so much. And I built, you know, I have to admit, you know, I, I'm very blessed that I built an amazing career by the end of those five years. You know, <clears throat> I was touring, you know, constantly, you know, I was touring the country. I was touring Europe with a, um, with like a punk metal band. Um, I was doing jazz stuff. You know, at one point I was, uh, I was on tour around South Africa. <clears throat> I was like um, sort of uh, piggybacking uh, two different tours at the same time. So I was on tour with with the National Youth Jazz Band, um, the South African National Youth Jazz Band. And I was also on tour with, with, with a funk band, like a big... <laughs> A big eight nine piece funk band doing like big main stage festival stages um and i was kind of like driving all over the country trying desperately to do these two different tours at the same time you know like play one festival in johannesburg you know on one night and then the next day had to you know jump in a in a, in a little a little um a little uh, like utility van and drive from Johannesburg to Pretoria to do a different festival with the funk band. And wow. it was, it was mad, you know, and, and it was amazing. You know, I got to tour the country with, with the national youth jazz band and the national youth big band um, and do all kinds, kinds of crazy stuff. And, and it was great. And it was a, re a really, really fertile time, but luckily that was all already happening. Um, and, um, and, but your question was the path to London. So, so what happened? So what happened was is that uh, basically, uh, you know, after I finished university, you know, my career in terms of of live touring and of studio recording was just you know building really really nicely, and and I was really blessed by that. And and there was there were a couple of projects in particular where. I was involved in a couple of these projects and they were doing really, really well nationally and there was potential uh, for them to, to start doing really well internationally. And um, so what happened was I just ended up kind of biding my time in South Africa <clears throat> just to see where these projects would go. Um, they had started, they had sort of started touring Europe already and and so all the positive signs were there that this could go international um and so i kind of i kind i kind of uh, uh, sort of hung back for a while uh, just to kind of see where those projects would go um but then unfortunately um you know the big the big 2009 global credit crash um basically changed lives for like a lot of people and and yeah. and plans for a lot of people and and what happened is is that <clears throat> because South Africa was going to host the the football the FIFA World Cup, World Cup yeah 2010 
because uh, that was com coming up in 2010, the big 2009 global credit crash didn't kind of smack us really hard from the beginning. <clears throat> the whole FIFA thing kind of kept the country going until mid-2010 when that finished. And, and then from mid-2010, the sort of the, the global effect uh, started seeping in uh, and and South Africa's economy started heading on a downward uh, trajectory from about 2010 onwards, you know, to be to be honest. Um, and the scene got tough, you know, this, you know, um, the scene got tough. A lot of venues started closing a lot of venues that that used to have full bands were scaling down to duos fees were dropping you know the scene started getting a lot more tough you know um i still felt very very blessed that i had a lot of good work still you know um but the scene got tougher and tougher and and you know if i'm really honest you know it, it was kind of sad because if i'm really honest from a period from about like 20 you know mid mid 2011 Till, till I left at the at the end of 2013, there was there was what I would say is quite a big exodus of of musicians from uh, for, out of Cape Town. You know, a lot of the guys who I had studied with at at the University of Cape Town, a lot of those guys had gone on to do incredible things. But you know, a lot of those guys all moved up to Johannesburg. Yeah. Um, all moved up to Johannesburg because it's the main financial center and you could still make a reasonable living from playing music. You know, these guys were opening recording studios and they were, um, you know, becoming musical directors of shows and, and opening record labels and, <clears throat> and doing all kinds of interesting stuff. And there was a lot of pressure on me. You know, a lot of these mates of mine would phone me and say, dude, move up to Joburg, move up to Joburg. You know, there's so much more happening and the fee, you, you know, the fees are, are so much bigger and it's the financial center, you know, and, and I was like, oh, but you know, Cape Town, I love Cape Town. And, uh, and I was conflicted, you know, I didn't want to leave Cape Town, but there was this exodus kind of happening up to Johannesburg because the guys could still make a living. And, and, you know, I kind of got to the point where myself and, and Lee, uh, my wife, who was, we weren't married back then yet, <clears throat> but the two of us were full-time session players and we were kind of like, look, you know, if we, if we're going to leave Cape Town, we, we don't want it to be for Johannesburg. Yeah. If we're going to leave Cape Town, we're going to, we're going to really try and take this thing all the way. And, and for us, you know, the UK was, was a possible option, um, that was attainable for us. And, uh, and London was, you know, was, 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 a, became a big goal for us, you know, so we we're like, okay, let's do this thing, you know, let's go to the big, the big pond. Absolutely. Big, and, and let's do this thing properly, you know. And yeah, we spent about a year, a year of preparations and, and applications and paperwork and admin and, and all that. And yeah, eventually just pulled the trigger and did it. I think, uh, I know for myself, a, a lot of Australians I know don't realise how ground-shakingly terrible the financial crisis was because we're, Australia actually skated through it relatively unharmed. I know in the professional, like the function bands, a lot of the function bands dropped down from like eight pieces down to four pieces. Yeah, yeah. But 
yeah, Australia was very lucky to have a, a pretty good government in at the time who just spent a truck ton of money to keep the economy afloat. Ah, okay. And right. so, yeah, they, they, um, I was given, I think I was given a thousand dollars or nine hundred dollars and told to go and buy something that I wouldn't normally buy. Okay. And that was the a massive injection of cash into the economy, which kept our economy afloat for about a year. Okay, incredible. So, yeah, there was, um, you know, the, uh, we won't get into politics already, but yeah, it's, uh, it was, it was, <laughs> It was, a lab- it was the brief time, it was a brief time in the last 25 years where there's been anything but a hard right government in the country and it saved uh, the country from yeah. falling apart. So yeah, from, yeah, economically falling apart, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so when you, you, you have some family here in the, in, in the UK? So yes, so my, my sister, um, she had moved to, to, to London already. She had moved here sort of like 20 years ago. Um, right. She's 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 three years older than me, and uh, as soon as she left high school, um, she she came over here um, and uh, and fell in love with it and stayed ever since. So she'd been here for a long time already, and then about um, about six or seven years before I left, I left in twenty thirteen, um, end of twenty thirteen. Um, so about six or seven years before that. Interestingly enough, my my parents were were running a business in Cape Town, and and my mother got a job offer uh, from somebody here in the UK that she just couldn't afford to turn down, you know, and um, and so they that's why they live out in Oxford. So they actually ah, right. about six or seven years before me, they actually sold up and packed up and came over and to you know to accept uh, that job offer. Um, that's why why that's why they're, they're out there and uh, so yeah so my in terms of my close family um I was the only one left <laughs> wow, that's amazing yeah yeah up until the end of uh, of 2013 but I do still have a lot of um uh, you know extended family uh, aunts and uncles and cousins and extended family and and my wife Lee all of her family are, are still there are still in Cape Town yeah lovely and so Let's get on to sort of like your. We're sort of moving up to the the COVID point, but let's let's talk a little bit more about your pre the pre COVID life and the before times. Yeah. Um, let's talk about um, like a typical week in the life of Mike Horn. Sort of what what would your up until March of this year, what would your typical sort of week be as a as a professional drummer in in London? Right. Well, I mean. Yeah, I mean, you know, life life here in London is quite different from life back in South Africa, you know. So, you know, in South Africa, I, you know, I was, um, I was, I was really busy. I was, I was in studio a lot more, uh, but back in South Africa, you know, I'd built up sort of quite a nice big reputation in amongst the recording scene and the producers and. And um, sometimes I was being flown up to Joburg to go to studios there, and 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 I did a lot of recording uh, back back in South Africa. At one point, actually, I was working uh, with this one producer uh, so much, uh, he, and he's still a really good friend to this day. But I was working with him so much that when uh, when my housemate uh, um, that I was living with 
uh, decided to move out and, and, and get rid of the place we were living in and I needed to find a new place, this guy said to me, well, mate, you, you, you've, you're basically recording here in my studio every day. Why don't you come and move in? Because he oh, had... Wow had rooms you know to, to, to host bands you know he's quite a big deal producer doing a lot of big albums for all the major labels you know sony and universal and and he had this this really big facility where he where he could have whole bands come and live in the studio for months on end so he said mate come and move in you know so i was like great yeah and uh and uh, i ended up living there for like a year and a half awesome um, basically down the passage from the studio you know i would wake up in the morning put my slippers on and sort of slough down the passage into the studio and we'd just record all day every day you know uh, adverts commercials tv themes movie themes you know uh, artist singles whatever came across his desk you know and it was a really awesome and amazing and fertile time you know that's and, amazing just got such a massive discography of recording just you know from that and um and 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 it was amazing so so you know and then outside of that you know rehearsals and meetings and then tours around the country for this and then functions and corporates and then off to this other city for this album and then off to the other city for that for that festival and and yeah, it was great. You know, it was it was it was busy and it was chaotic and and you know and I loved it. Um, but yeah, then, you know, then I did the hard thing of of um, of of, of uh, pressing pause on my entire life, you know, and liquidating everything and moving to a different country uh, where I had nothing and knew nobody and and starting all over again from scratch, you know. Um, but yeah so you know from so from beginning of 2014 it you know then suddenly my life was different then it was moved to london and then suddenly my days were just about okay how do i how do i start it over again from scratch how do i build a whole new network from the bottom up you know i don't know anybody you know so it was literally just going out at night to jam sessions walking up to strangers and going hi you know shake my hand you don't know me uh i know i'm a total stranger but my name's mike and and i can play drums and i'd love to have a jam <laughs> they were like oh okay so you claim but all right let's see you know and just starting to build a network of meeting people and 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 yeah that's been pretty much the last seven years you know and slowly started picking up gigs and then little stuff started coming in and little stuff led to bigger stuff and then bigger stuff and tours and you know and all kinds of uh, you know amazing things and that's so awesome tours and european tours and yeah it's been it's been really incredible yeah right and and so what would you say like just so what would you say would be like a career highlight so it could be Anything from sort of like big stadiums right through to like small gigs that really meant something, like significant, like things that happened. What could you put your finger on one or? Um, <clears throat> can I put my finger on just one? Um, there's been there's been quite a few, you know. There's been quite a few, you know. There were. Um, 
can I just say one? I mean, I don't think I can say that there's that there is just one. You know, I, there's like there's there, there's a couple which I couldn't I couldn't mention this one without mentioning that one, but for different reasons. You know, we'll go like, on then. Like like some of the some of the most um, sort of euphoric sort of. For, you know, in terms of fulfillment, some of the best shows that I've ever done back in South Africa um, were, um, were um, so, so uh, a friend of mine started a, a big sort of uh, audio visual uh, concert extravaganza called Symphonic Rocks, which was um, a whole host of all the country's biggest artists and bands all backed by a you know a, a massive sixty-five piece symphony orchestra. Holy macaroni! Yeah, so full band plus sixty-five piece symphony orchestra, and it was this massive audio visual um, feast, you know. And he started putting on these shows every year called Symphonic Rocks, and I and he and and I for every year that he did it, <clears throat> he booked me as the house drummer. Wow! For the whole thing. So I was playing. You know, in with this big sixty-five piece symphony orchestra playing with all the biggest, uh, you know, bands and artists in South Africa, and uh, and then in the last year that he did it, he brought over um, he brought over Ed Rowland of Collective Soul. Oh wow! And so I got to work with with you know with basically with Collective Soul doing the music of Collective Soul with Ed, who is Collective Soul, you know. The thing about that band too is a lot of people don't know, but they are awesome musicians. They're all highly trained, awesome session musicians, very skilled guys. Totally, totally. Very skilled guys, lovely session players, really nice um, uh, music and written really nicely. And Ed's an incredible player and an incredible songwriter. You know, he's Grammy, you know, Grammy winner, um, he's written stuff for other artists that people don't even realize were actually, actually written by, by, by Ed Rowland, you know, of, of Collective Soul, you know. Um, really incredible. And getting to work with him, you know, getting to work with like a Grammy, a Grammy level artist, you know, suddenly, oh, you just feel it. You just, you know, when you're, when you're on stage with somebody like that, um, you know, like when you're in like a really fast sort of, really like uh, fast streetcar, like a, you know, a Lamborghini or a Porsche, you know, a, a Ferrari and somebody hits the accelerator. And for that first second, it kind of throws you back into your seat, you know, uh, as, as it first starts accelerating. Um, it's, it's almost like the musical version of that. A, pro a proper heavy cat. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like, 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 oh, suddenly the whole thing is just, you can feel the level has just been raised. Yeah. You know? like, oh, oh, okay. This is, oh, this is a slightly, this, this is another level, you know. That's awesome. And working with, with someone like that, you know, it, it, it was one of those feelings. And it, it was an arena tour um, around the country. And so we we're doing, you know, b big arenas and playing, you know, that, that incredible music. Um, and yeah, it was like a... I, well, I want to say it was a once-in-a-lifetime experience, but it was actually a, a three times because I, you know, <laughs> I think it was 2010, 2011, 2012. And so those shows were super special. Those those will just live in my mind as being super special forever, you know. That's incredible, man. 
Yeah. And then <clears throat> the next time that I had that feeling again was um was uh was last year with with uh, John. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. You would Yeah, 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 yeah. I was Man. so sad. I was so sad that I didn't get to come to the gig that you played, the gigs that you played on. I saw him yes. with the other drummer and I was so sad because I was really looking forward to seeing what you were going to do with that. That was such he's such an amazing musician, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was the ironic thing is that is that is that he didn't need me for the London show. Yeah. Uh, all the shows I did were all outside of London, you know. And I was like, ah, you know. The other guy, the other guy did um, Darren. He's a super nice guy uh, from um, from uh, um, uh, I want simple simple minds. Simple minds, yeah. Yeah, and uh, super super cool guy. And and uh, he he did the London show, and I was like, ah, oh, I, I wish I could do I could do my own hometown show. Um, uh but man playing with josh was 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 heavy for two reasons so so he is such a heavy player um he's got that sound and that presence you know he starts playing and he's got this massive sound and this massive sense of groove and this very deep sense of time and even just in sound check, you know, even in sound check, he's he's playing something, and the sense of time is so heavy that you almost feel like, man, this guy doesn't even need drums, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, he a- he has them, but he doesn't need them, you know. <laughs> also, just just for people that are listening, Josh Smith is an iconic American artist. He's played extensively with guys like Joe Bonamassa, so he. He quite often gets called up on the on the Bonamassa tours and stuff. Like he's he's a heavyweight international, yeah. um, probably one of the, probably one of my top three living guitar players. I would say, oh, and cool. just his use of his use of vocabulary and sound is just so incredible. Like the way he, I love his use of fuzz. Mm, there's mm. not a lot of guitar players that can use fuzz well. Like there's him, I think there's him and the guy from Big Wreck, Ian Thornley. They, okay. He's another heavy cat. But Josh yeah. Smith, when I, I have, I've seen every major guitar player that's around, and Josh Smith was the only person I was compelled to get a photo with because I was like, this guy is heavy, man. Like he's from yeah. another. He's, he he vibrates at a slightly different level. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. I mean, as you say. Joe, from Joe Bonamassa to Mick Jagger's solo yeah. stuff to, you know, Raphael Sadiq, um, you know, all those dudes, you know, so many heavy cats. And it's, it's so cool just to be around someone who takes their sound so seriously. I mean, you know, that guy's pedal board, you know, and he, the stuff that he had going on there, it's like the, it's like the cockpit of a Boeing 747 and, and just how into it he, he is and how 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 much he knows about how every pedal is affecting every other pedal and he's so into his sound, he takes it so seriously and he's so uncompromising. Mm. About so uncompromising about his sound. And it shows, you know, it totally pays off. Yeah, I was really I was really sad I didn't get to see a player with that. I was really looking forward wow. to that. But thank next, you, Matt. Thank next you. time maybe. Yeah. I actually ran into him, strangely, his last tour him. Yeah. Uh, in the UK, I was I live in North London, and there was, there was a place called Wild Guitars. Okay. And he, I was walking up the street, 
yeah. from just I, I don't know what I was doing, but it's on Archway Road near the near the Highgate um, tube station. Okay. And uh, I'm walking along, and I'm like, "That's Josh Smith," <laughs> and he was just there. He was buying this really obscure old um, British-made amplifier. Okay. And just going back to your point about like his reels, he's always searching for that tone. Like he's always looking and his dedication to it is just, so he had it, he, the, not the tour that you played on, but the one before yeah, he had yeah. ho- heard about these amps and he tracked it down. Ah, like, okay. and the only place he could find it was this one little shop, which is not far from where I live. And I was just like, you're Josh Smith. And he's like, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm playing tonight. And I was like, yeah, I know. Like, <laughs> and, um, I yeah. think he was a little bit taken aback that someone like just on a high street in in the UK was just like, "Hey, you're Josh Smith." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he was such a self-effacing cat, man. He was just really laid back. He goes, "Oh, you should come tonight." And I was like, "Yeah, I know, I should," and I couldn't because I was playing. You're working, yeah. So yeah. I, I couldn't go, but I, I made sure that the next time he came, I went. So yeah, he, that was yeah. And so un- uncompromising, you know, with his sound and. And 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 the feel and the groove and everything and it's just oh you know, it's just playing drums with him. It's like I don't, you know, it doesn't. Uh, it it makes it not hard work for me. It's just like oh man, this this is just like an engine and it's going and you have to keep up, you know, and it's great. And so that's the one reason why it was heavy because of Josh's playing. And then the other reason why it was personally quite heavy for me is because. Um, one of Josh's main guys, one of his, you know, main drummers back in Los Angeles, who Josh had just recorded a live concert with, is Gary Novak. Right. Yeah. And Gary Novak is one of my, like, all-time absolute top guys. Like, oh, I didn't know that. Me personally, as a, for me personally as a player, like... Those two guys are my top guys, Vinny Colaiuta and Gary Novak. Wow. Like, those are my two go-to guys, you know, when, when, when I'm in desperate need of, of, of inspiration. Colaiuta and Novak, you know, and Gary Novak, for those who don't know, you know, um, you know, super famous for playing with everyone from Chikoria, um, acoustic band, Chikoria electric band, uh, Alan Holdsworth, um, uh, from everyone right across the spectrum to Alanis Morissette, you know, um, right in the beginning when Alanis Morissette was was massive, you know, uh, right in the beginning of all those Grammy Awards, you know, it was yeah. Gary Novak. Um, and, uh, you know, he was instrumental in that big song of hers, Uninvited. Yeah. So, yeah, just one of my all-time heaviest guys, and he's one of Josh's guys, and he's just recorded this live gig at the Baked Potato <laughs> with Travis Colton on bass and Gary Novak on drums. And now I have to learn the set. And and the stuff that he sends me is the stuff with Gary Novak. Wow. So I'm learning Gary Novak's parts, you know. And that just, for me, was just like a life time moment and all time like what is this actually really happening you know like i have to learn novak's parts and and that was that was really really special for me and and ironically at the time of that tour 
Gary Novak got flown into London to do um, to do a, a video recording project at the Pool Studios, and I, and I went along there to hang out with Josh and Gary, and we ended up going after the session, going to Five Guys to get burgers, you no. know. And there I'm sitting in Five Guys in King's Cross with Josh Smith and having Five Guys burgers with 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 like Gary Novak who's like playing I've obsessed over, you know, since Chikoria Time Warp, you know, and, uh, oh, man, it was just such a surreal experience, you know. That's amazing. Did you just fangirl out at one point or? Totally, totally. I, I had to work really hard at like, at, like, playing it really cool. Like, oh, yeah, man, you know, I'm playing with, like, with Josh Smith as well as you and, like, this is so not a big deal for me. <laughs> Inside. <laughs> That's amazing. Inside, it's I'm like I'm like first year university, Whee! sitting in my friend's little flat in front of his little TV with a VHS tape of Chikoria Time Warp, trying to like absorb these Gary Novak solos. You know what is he doing? I don't know what is he doing because the camera pans away and I can't, we can't see what he's doing at that point. Ah. Wow. <laughs> and what an what an amazing player too because if you look at like chick career stuff like that is just because i really I, I mean i'm a massive gambali a frank gambali fan like yeah. i i love his playing and he you know quite often plays in the electric band yeah but it, yeah to, to come from someone like gambali who is just hmm. on a nut once again just you know just something something otherworldly yeah. to josh right. smith who is you know, we talked about his otherworldliness, but also like his actual like the thing I get from Josh all the time is just this grittiness, like a gritty integrity. Mm. You know, mm. like it's it's almost earthy, it's almost primal. Whereas you wouldn't you wouldn't say that about Gambali. Gambali's very esoteric, very heady sort of stuff, you know, and to be able to to be able to groove with those two different guys on such an integral level is such a nod to that man as a player. Oh yes, yeah, wow, yeah. Uh, absolutely. And I think that's why I, I think that's why I've always idolised guys like, like Vinnie Colaiuta and like Gary Novak is, because not only from a visual perspective is everything just looks so deliciously tasty, um, the way that they, the way that they play, but also that's, I, I, I respect them both so much and I idolise them both so much because they are doing what i what i aspire to do i aspire to be able to to be comfortable in any musical uh, situation you know um in you know in any kind of musical um environment they can they can they can adapt and they can just be so on it regardless you know it's like the the way i the way i want to describe my career one day is like like the mark that I hold myself up to was the day that I went into a, a, a CD shop. Now, now the kids out there won't know what that is, but uh, <laughs> that that back in the day when there used to be shops that sold uh, things called CDs, which stands for compact disc. <laughs> and uh, I went into a CD shop and I walked out. I went there specifically to get two albums that I knew Vinnie Carliuda was on. I walked out with two albums that Vinny had just recorded. He just recorded the new Michael Bublé big band album. Wow. And 
the at that time the most recent Megadeth album. What? Yeah, yeah. Megadeth it was on a Megadeth album. The system has failed. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah, 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 yeah. They both came out like around the same time, and and I went on the same day and walked out with both those albums that both had Vinny doing like big band swing with Buble and like double kick metal all the way metal with like the legendary Megadeth. Yeah, that's amazing. And I thought to myself, man, that is the kind of career that I want. Yeah, you know, that is wow. the kind of respect and that's the kind of career i want for myself you know? you've actually you've actually blown my mind man <laughs> yeah it's weird <laughs> so many people don't realize you know they just don't know it yeah because yeah. he's um because I, I grew up listening to megadeth like I'm, I'm a massive he's actual he's he's guitarist at the moment kiko lorio he's an amazing uh-huh. brazilian guitarist He's just, he's one of my favorites as well and the one before him chris broderick he's one of my favorite guitarists yeah. but his original not his original drummer, but the drummer for like Holy Wars. He just died, didn't he? Really? Yeah, he just died. Mike something. Oh, I can't remember his name. He just passed away. I think he was only like 55. Gosh, this is this is news to me. I need to look that up because wow, that's heavy. I, I had no idea. About- yeah, that like the, the classic the classic album lineup of like Marty Friedman, him. Right. Um, Dave Ellefson and the, the drummer M- Mike something. I keep wanting to say Mike Mangini, but that's not right. I think it's Mike Me- Mezzanani or something like that. Mike Borden? No, it wasn't Mike Borden because he's from Faith No More. Right? Yeah, uh, yeah. I think it was Mike. It was something. It, it was an Italian sort of centric name. It was Mike Mezzanani or something? And anyway, someone will message me and tell me. But yeah, yeah, yeah. he he just died recently, which was sad because I have such an attachment to like that out. Al- yeah. But anyway, that's beside the point. I didn't know Culiota was on a Culiota was on a Megadeth album. You've you've killed me. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Nick Menza. Nick Menza. That's it. Sorry. Nick Menza. Close. Mike Menzini. Nick Nick Menza. It's the same thing. Gosh, I mean, has he just passed away? Yeah, pretty recently. Oh, no. Yeah, he's an amazing drummer. Oh, shame. Yeah, totally, totally, yeah. Well, I mean, you'd have to be to, yeah. play, play, to play that stuff, yeah. Um, and, yeah, Kaliuda, Novak, you know, that's why those guys are my guys, you know. Um, you know, f- you know f- whether from straight ahead, straight ahead bebop, modern contemporary, all the way through to pop, all the way through to you know, um, metal, you know, double kick drum metal. I mean, Collie Uta, you know, what do you want? You want Megadeth, you want Michael Bublé, you want Faith Hill. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't get heavier than Faith Hill. Country, yeah, country, what do you want? You know, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, Blue Note, Tokyo. Oh, man. That's amazing. All right, so let's let's move on quickly to the serious stuff. We've just been nerding out about music and drummers for an hour. but. Um, that's great. So obviously now we're in we're in sort of the end of August now. Um, yeah. Can you just talk us through a little bit briefly, however much you want to share about sort of what's happened since sort of March to you and and your sort of life and career? Yeah, I mean, I think you'll find um, my story to be you know very similar to to most and 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 to a lot of people. You know, I mean, this whole weird Corona thing started happening, and I mean. Whoever could have seen this coming, whoever could have thought, you know, outside of like a Hollywood movie, 
you know, you watch Hollywood movies about global epidemics and global pandemics, and suddenly this is a real one. And it's like, what? What is happening, you know? And uh, yeah, like everybody else, throughout the course of March, gigs started falling away and falling away. I was very, very lucky. I um, one of the one of the last few gigs that I did uh, was mid Feb. I did uh, the Brit Awards, um, the Brit Awards at the O2 with um, an incredible, uh, incredible American soul singer. Um, American soul uh, queen, I like to call her, uh, Akantha Lang. Yeah. Akantha Lang, originally from New Orleans, and did the Brit, Brit Awards with her. So that was mid-Feb. Did a couple of more uh, things with her throughout Feb and and beginning of March. And yeah, the, and then the diary just started clearing out. This started falling away, that started falling away. The functions all got... Um, you know, at first everything was being like postponed in inverted commas, and and then postponed again, and then postponed again, and and um, and yeah, the diary just sort of emptying out, and um, and it's been yeah, it's been really tough on me. It's been really tough on my wife, who's also a, a musician, singer, and keyboard player. And yeah, you know, we're a household of um, of two two musicians, and uh, and it's been really hard. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really tough. In the beginning, there was a lot of panic. There was a lot of confusion. Um, a lot of heavy stuff went down. You know, um, we got dropped pretty heavily in some pretty deep water quite early on. And, um, you know, we had to do sort of quite some pretty severe damage control with, with our landlord. And, you know, and it took us a good couple of months um, to work our way out of that and to square everything away and um, and but yeah we've you know we've you know we've come through that that was really heavy and and yeah our living situation was threatened like so many people's and and yeah no income you know yeah yeah just no industry you know not only no income not just no gigs no no industry you know no industry. R- rug well and truly pulled yeah, the whole industry. It's not like I can say, oh, well, you know, I've hurt my arm, so I can't play drums, so I'll do something else. I, like I'll do, you know, I'll do like some admin. There's there's no industry. There's no festivals. There's, you know, from sound guys to crew guys to lighting guys to events people, record labels, record distributors, you know, gear people, music shops. There's just no industry, you know. Mm industry's shut down so it's funny guys actually just sent i sent a bunch of emails because sort of some some venues are starting to book band not bands but mostly solo performers and duos and things like that for outside performances and i actually spoke to a email message with a, a venue that i'd played at in the before times and they were talking about march to april next year for regular performances really eh? really I mean that's that's one venue, but and they're they're very much like a, your traditional English pub, so very small, very close, yes. you know, not a lot of ventilation. So obviously those are going to be the last ones to come back. But yeah, that was a bit of a like, ooh, you know, mm-hmm. Boris Boris might think everything is fine and happy, but the realities are very different on the ground still. Very different on the ground, yeah, mm. and it's so weird because because 
you know, people can't, people don't know what's going to happen. So people can't plan ahead. And so because they can't plan ahead, they're not taking any chances. So the majority of the stuff that that could have been rescheduled has been rescheduled for next year. Next year. So people are like, oh, well, what do you think the rest of this year is going to look like? And I'm like, well, to be honest, bad, bad, not good because people don't want to take any more risks. They, you know, they, they were like delaying stuff for like maybe August, maybe September, maybe October, but now all that's just been moved till next year, till 2021. So I've got bookings for 2021, but I've got absolutely, uh, well, I've got nothing f- booked for the rest of this year. Yeah. Having said that, having said that I've got nothing booked f- for the rest of the year, I actually am ironically doing my first gig this Saturday. Oh, wow. Yeah, my first gig in a couple of months. Um, and a friend of mine just messaged me and said, hey, can you can you cover a show for me this Saturday? And I was like, uh, a show? Oh, okay, yeah. And it's a Simply Red tribute show. Um so I'm actually doing a Simply Red tribute show down on Hailing Island um, this coming Saturday. Where is that? That that's 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 at a hotel. I think that's called Warner Hotels. Warner yeah. got a hotel on Hailing Island down south, just down on the south coast. You know, near near Portsmouth, I think. Oh right, okay. Um, and yeah, Simply Red tribute shows, a socially distanced. Simply read tribute show, you know, with like a socially distanced audience, you know. And um, I mean, I don't, I can't imagine for the life of me what my buddy had on. That, <laughs> that, that he needed me to deck this out for him. <laughs> that's like, that's the behavior of someone who's like spoiled for gigs, you know. <laughs> that's like, that's like in the before times behavior when you dip and then you dip again and dip again. Yeah, back in the before times. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's I, like, yeah. Oh, I'm so busy that I need a dip. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want what he's having. Give me some of that. Totally. Give me that, some of that dip life. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, but, yeah, dipping for him this Saturday. So it'll like be my, be my first public gig in, in like five, five, six months, you know. Um, and, and so having said that, I'm doing that this Saturday. But, I mean, he just called me for that, um, you know, last weekend. You know, I've got nothing in the diary, you know, nothing's in actually in the diary, you know, planned in advance, you know, um, and, and yeah, it's a heavy time, you know, and, and, and one of the, one of the, one of the scariest thing is that it's not the same for everybody, you know, I mean, yeah. I know people, I know people, I know I've got friends who work in finance in the city and, you know, their salaries have not stopped. You know, they've they've they were able to work from home before they were already able to work from home. It wasn't a big deal. So when this hit, it was just like, okay, just keep working from home. And they just kept working from home and nothing's changed. Their job hasn't changed. Their salary's not changed. They're paying off mortgages for houses. And, you know, their lives have not really changed Maybe they've, you know, maybe in their minds, their lives have changed a little bit. But I mean, compared to us, you know, compared to me, you know, almost overnight, you know, me and my wife went down to zero, down to nothing, down to no livelihood. Uh, a lot of people have been the same. 
Um, so that's the difficult thing is that everyone's trying to argue as if they're on the same playing field, but they're not. You know, not everyone's on the same playing field. Some people have been have been hit really, really hard. You know, some people's lives haven't changed at all. Some people have lost everything. I know people who've had to move out. You know, I mean, <clears throat> apparently landlords, you know, were being given um, uh, mortgage holidays. Um, and I'm hearing stories of those not being passed on to the tenants and tenants going to the landlord saying, oh, you know, can you help us? And the landlord saying, oh, well, well, I didn't get a mortgage holiday because I didn't qualify for one. Is that the truth? Who knows? You know, it's it's caused a lot of people a lot of heartache, you know. Well, I think that I was, uh, you know, like... I read a lot of stuff and I, I watch a lot of stuff and the the idea that we're all in this together is just a flawed argument because we're actually not, you know, I, I know people that are saving, they're making more money now. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, I personally know people that because they don't have to travel now and because their expenses yeah. are different, they're actually making more money. So yeah, yeah you know, it just just to that, like when we're, when we're talking about that, how do you, I mean, we're, we're a fair way into it now. So what do you think about the government response overall? Do you, do you sort of, are you supportive of their scheme to reimburse like the, the, the um, self-employed people? What's your take on the, on how the government has reacted to this crisis? Um, it's a difficult one because people, people think, you know, that, that, that you have to have one blanket um, answer and it has to apply to each and every single aspect of the problem, okay? And for me, that's 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 one of the major problems that I have with, with the government response to that, is that overall, in the vast majority of cases where it really counts to the whole country, I think the government's uh, reactions and responses have been have been absolutely catastrophically disastrous. Uh, um, catastrophically disastrous, yet yet unsurprising at the same time. Yeah. You know, because it's just it's just ruthless capitalism. You know, it's just like money first, everything else last. You know, um, it's just, and I mean. Why do I expect their reaction to be different? I shouldn't. You know, it's like I should know exactly. Yeah, they're they're behaving exactly the way I pre I predicted they would behave. I mean, in terms of you 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 specified one tiny aspect, and that's the help for self-employed people. And as far as that individual aspect goes, the help has been great. Yeah. You know, as far as I'm concerned, has been great. Um, it took quite a heavy push in the beginning to get that help for self-employed people. Uh, but it eventually did become policy. Uh, eventually became policy. And that help has come through. And 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 um, it has come through for a lot of people, not for everybody. Nope. A lot of people have fallen through the cracks um, because of weird situations. Not everybody's situation is the same you know people see things way too black and white you know you're either this or you're that you know yep. everybody's situation is different so some people have fallen through the cracks but but i can say from personal experience that the help for self-employed people has been great 
you know, and that is a lifesaver. But that is one part, that's one tiny part of it. That's, you know, that's one tiny, tiny part of the whole thing. And, and, and overall, you know, the, the government, you know, funneling millions and millions and billions of pounds to companies, you know, to companies who are based in offshore tax havens, you know, for, 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 for a contact tracing app which was ultimately abandoned, mm. you know, um, just flashing hundreds of millions and hundreds of billions of pounds down the toilet, you know, on contact apps that were, that were, you know, that were, that were made without any tendering, you know, no tendering process, just given to Dominic Cummings' buddies, yep. you know, whoever Dominic Cummings' mates are, you know, who need a couple of hundred million funneled into their offshore tax havens, they just get, you know, a whole, you know, a huge wax of money, no tendering. Um, and, you know, that, that happened for the contract uh, contact tracing app, that happened for all that PPE, you know, all that personal protective equipment that ended that, up... That tracing app, which is still not up, by the way, there's still no official contract tracing... It's been abandoned, and and the PPE which came back uh, and and failed safety standards, you know, hundreds of millions to all of Cummings's buddies put into their offshore tax havens, taxpayer money being funneled into offshore tax havens um, for PPE that that didn't even meet safety standards, and you know what's happening with that? Oh well, it's not being it's not being bleated about on the front page of the of the newspaper, so. Is there going to be follow-up? No. Is there going to be, um, you know, recourse? Is that money going to be recovered? No. Is it going to be demanded back from those people? No. Nothing's going to happen. But we're all in this together. But we're all in this together, you know. Mm. And that's and that's shameful, you know. It's really, it really is, is, is shameful. And that's why I'm not afraid to say it, because no one should be af afraid to say it. You know, it it's, it's really is a shameful failure. And and the whole the whole the whole insulting scandal with the whole of the NHS basically, basically emotionally manipulating people into going outside every Thursday night and clapping, you know, for 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 NHS staff. But you know, no pay, no pay rises. You know, in the last in the last um, ten years, MPs have received eight pay rises in ten years. Eight pay rises. You know, NHS staff have, have received two. You know, yeah. Um, you know, in 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 that same period of time, uh, you know, um, not enough PPE for them, not enough protection. They still, they still never got, they never got um, tests. You know, free tests for frontline staff. Yeah. You know, the testing was a shambles. Oh, it still it's, is it's a shambles. Oh, it still is a shambles, you know. There's so many other countries that have done so much better, which is the proof of the pudding. The proof of the pudding is ultimately in the eating. Yep. You know, um, and when there's when there's other countries who are just doing so much better, so blatantly, so obviously, you know, it's just the proof of the pudding's in the eating, really. Well, I'm just curious what will happen in the next few months because, as you said, like the. Boots on the ground is telling me that the, this Christmas period coming is going to be the quietest Christmas period on record for anybody that's not in finance. 
Um, yeah. So where's where's the support going to come from? We, we've I've just had the second payment, which is a reduced payment from last time, and that's it. Like that said, the second and final payment, like it says it in the document, yeah. you will not receive anything else. So some yeah, somehow you magically have to manufacture another yeah. career. Um, so when the when the self employed help ends, yeah, you know that's they, it. They are clear ending that, and and that's it. You know, but. Coronavirus continues to keep our industry pretty much shut down um, until next year. You know, some, Which is at tough, some man. unknown point next year, and it's tough. You know, I mean, on the on the downside, it's you know, it's really hard, and it, it's not it's not difficult to it's not difficult to very quickly get down about it. You know, I I left. You know, at the end of twenty thirteen, I you know. Um, I left, I, I walked away from a very successful career. I'd, I'd built a whole life. I'd built a massive network of of people, of producers, of musical directors, of, of, of gear suppliers, uh, endorse, endorses, you know, endorsers. Um, I'd built a huge network over like 15, 20 years. And I walked away from all of it um, to, to leave behind a smaller pond uh, and moved to a big, big, big international pond, um, and I I spent seven years grafting really hard, going out all night, every night, catching two night buses home at five a.m. in the morning from the centre of town uh, for you know for years, for years and years, rebuilding a, a life and rebuilding a network from scratch, um, and. It's all gone in the blink yeah. of an eye yeah. again uh, for the second time, and and it feels like, you know, like next year when if and when things start happening again, it feels like it it feels very much like I've got to start all over again uh, for yeah. the second time. And I was having this conversation with my wife. She was also saying it. It feels like we're going to have to all start again from scratch um, for the second time. Uh, and it's quite easy to 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 get sucked into a dark place, um, you know, psychologically about about all of that. But you know what, man? At the end of the day, everyone's just got to just let go and just say, you know what? You know, we're going to get through this. It's going to be fine. At the end of the day, you know, you know. Fortunately, I haven't had any family members who've been taken by by the coronavirus yet. I'm still not that bad off, you know. Uh, it's majorly stressful. We've got major financial stress. Uh, it's been a massive slog. But you know what? I'm still better off than than the 60,000 families in the UK who've been devastated permanently and forever, you know. Uh, there's stories of, of one woman who's, who lost her mother, her father, and her brother. To, to coronavirus. And you know what? I can't even begin to imagine what that must feel like. There's people, you know, way, way worse off with real, real, real problems. And you know what? Ultimately, for me, that's what life is about. Life is about caring for other people and about loving other people. Um, I'm, not, I'm not such a severe narcissist and um, I don't worship at the temple of, of individualism where I say me first before everybody else. 
Um, it's just not who I am. It's not how I'm built. So, you know, I think about those people. I think about those people who've lost people to coronavirus, and I just think, you know what? Those people, those are those are real problems. My problems, are they? Are they that big? Are they the end of the world? You know, only the actual end of the world is the end of the world. <laughs> only when it's like literally the sun is not going to rise tomorrow, that's the actual end of the world. So are my problems actually that enormous? Am I bleeding? You know, you know growing up as a young boy, that's, you know, that's what my mother, I mean, I'd have dark times and I'd be really down about things, you know, through high school and through university. And my mom would say, hey, man, if you're not bleeding, you're fine. <laughs> I think it's probably a very South African thing. South African. No, no, that sounds, that sounds very familiar to me, mate. South Africa, you have to be, you have to be selective. You know, you can't, you can't get too done about every single little thing. You know, getting home alive at the end of the day is an achievement sometimes. Um, you know, South Africa's got its problems. I love it. You know, I love, I love my home country. Um, but yeah, sometimes growing up in South Africa, you just got to be a little bit hard and you got to say, hey, is this problem actually that big? And if I'm not bleeding, you know what? The sun's going to rise tomorrow. And tomorrow is another day that I can just try and start making better choices and try and behave myself out of the situation. And, uh, and yeah, I've got problems. If I, if I focus on my own problems, they can seem huge. But you know what? There's people out there who've lost way more, you know. Even if I lost this place where, where I'm living right now, even if I had to move out of here, even if I lost it and I had to find somewhere else, hey, man, that's life. I've moved many times in my life. I'm not bleeding and I haven't lost any family members, you know. we just got to just uh, – in, in in South Africa, there's a, a very famous term called fuss bait. Fuss bait means to bite hard. Right. And, and it's like it's used as a, as a synonym for like for hang on. Right. You were like clinging to a cliff edge and you were, you were holding on really tight. You, if you're holding on really tight, the word to describe that is called fuss bait. Fuss you know? bait. Fuss bait, yeah. So listen, China, you just got to fuss bait, you know. <sighs> Fast bait until next year, you know. Um, there's people with much, much bigger problems, you know. Mate, that uh, that sounds like a great place to leave it. Actually, I've got to say, fast bait. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, I think that's a that's a very I think uh, I think stoicism here is is the byword. Okay. Yeah. Stoicism, yeah. fast bait. Yeah. Who was who was who was the emperor? I can't remember the emperor. Um, anyway, Roman emperor, his whole thing was stoicism. Exactly the same thing. Just hold on, do what you have to do and get it done. Yeah, yeah. Fasbait. Amal mut net fasbait. Amal mut net fasbait. That's Afrikaans, yeah? Amal mut net fasbait. Yeah, that's Afrikaans for everyone's just got to hang in there. Just keep hanging on. Wow, that's uh, my wife's Dutch, so I can I, I get a little bit of that. Alles. Almut. Alles. Alles mut fasbait. Fasbait, yeah. Cool, man. All right. Well, where can our listeners uh, check out more of your stuff? Facebook, Instagram, website? Yeah, all of the above. The best the best place to check out uh, uh, me in general and what I'm up to in my life is, is, is Instagram, Instagram and Facebook. Uh, the best place to check out my music and what I, how I play and who I've played with is my YouTube channel. So those are all 
Mike Horn Music. Um, Instagram is at Mike Horn Music. Uh, that's that's uh, uh, that's M I K E H O R N E Horn with an E. Horn with an E. Horn with an E. Uh, music. Uh, um, uh, uh, YouTube's the same at Mike Horn Music. Uh, Facebook. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, go go to my YouTube. I, I I did upload quite a cool video there recently that I'm quite proud of. And the jazz quite... one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really good, man. Got to try. Thank you, man. That's Thank really cool. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed that. Yeah, good fun. All right, mate. Well, it's been a pleasure to chat to you and, and nerd out about session players and fusion and yeah. stuff. Thank you so much for having me on this. I really appreciate it. If you've enjoyed the podcast, feel free to head over to the PayPal link attached to the description in the show notes and throw us a couple of pounds. You can also head over to my website, www.beneatonmusic.com and check out all the stuff that I do. I'd love for you to leave a comment or get back to me on Facebook, Instagram or YouTube, all under the name Ben Eaton Music. Have a great one. We'll see you next time.